0: In this episode of the Next Frontier podcast, I sit down with Taylor Waddell. Here we talk all about making, the making community, individual makers, how to get better as a maker, and how do you tap into this resource that's popping up, this abundant resource that is makers, makerspaces, and making communities. Studying computer science and mechanical engineering, Taylor was one of the first employees at the University of Wisconsin Madison's makerspace. Recently, Taylor's brought his maker acumen to NASA in Huntsville, Alabama at Marshall Space Flight Center. Next, Taylor started Mad Makers, a student org that's set on empowering other students to leverage the tools and capabilities of being a maker. If you are an entrepreneur or an executive or you own a company and you're looking to tap in to this creative cloud that is college students and that is college makers, Taylor is the guy to listen to. He's started several student organizations and he does some consulting work bridging the gap between people with ideas, people who want to get things built, and college students and young entrepreneurs and young makers and young designers and young engineers who want to build them and who have the resources to build them on their campuses. On the other hand, if you're a young entrepreneur, a young creator, a young designer, a young maker, and you want to learn how to better leverage maker spaces and leverage the maker mentality, I highly recommend listening for some tactical ways that Taylor suggests you get involved in the maker community. Without further ado, I hope that you enjoy this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast, and let's dive right in. All right, so I'm here with Taylor Waddell. I'm so grateful for you joining me today, Taylor. Yeah, glad I could Uh, be here. We're going to talk about everything from maker spaces to student organizations to just being a badass hacker in general. Uh, Taylor is also one of the more intelligent and capable engineers that I know, so I'm grateful for him taking his time today. Thank you. All right, cool. So, Taylor, I'd love it if you could start by just giving us a background. What year in school are you, how did you get into making, and what are your three favorite things or three projects that you're working on right now that mm-hmm. you that you would consider are definitional that kind of define who you are?
1: Yeah, that's a good one. All right. So, I am a currently a junior in mechanical engineering and computer science uh kind of atypical in that realm. A lot of people either go one route or the other and I just I couldn't decide either way. Um and from that, like that kind of defines who I am as a maker as well. Because a maker is just the broad encompassing of all those kind of different subjects and it's kinda of delving into them and learning them on yourself. So I kind of stumbled across what a makerspace is. Uh I wanna say junior or senior year of high school. And if you don't know, a makerspace is kind of just a general area where you have kind of 3D printers, laser cutters, just general making, rapid prototyping tools. But that's not what it makes a makerspace special. It's always the community, and that's always the focus for makerspaces. So that's kind of where I developed myself. I found a makerspace in Milwaukee. I started learning the tools, but then I started meeting the people and the projects and just sitting there working on one project, talking to someone who's working on in a completely different field, you start to apply that to your project you're working on, and that's what really builds the creativity within makerspaces. Um, so, the projects that I'm currently working on, I've got one for NASA that I'm working on right now. That involves we're trying to take a just kind of any general NASA model, being able to put it into VR, being able to have people from multiple centers come in, interact with it, pull it apart, make notes on it, and then from that be able to do design reviews because this is a whole field that actually has not been well done as nasa abroad like if you want to figure out how it's going to be before it's built you're just going to look at the model of the computer there's not really that 3d printing aspect of rapid prototyping there's not really that vr aspect there's no idea of concepts of these new kind of fields that are being applied to these kind of older engineers uh nasa actually i think the median age is around 40 or 50.
0: That's so funny because the Apollo era it was what, like 25 mm-hmm. when they were building the Apollo rockets?
1: Yeah, so they're all used to like these super kind of like old ways, this is how it's done by the book. So when you try to bring in these new ideas and these new concepts, it's like a whole new field that you open up. But it's, it's also really hard because they don't want to break it there. They want to stay in those old ways.
0: That's so interesting. So you've really covered the whole maker spectrum, from high school student who yeah. is passionate about making and just learning about making, mm-hmm. to actually training, you know, forty and fifty year old engineers oh, yeah. at NASA how to how to be makers.
1: Oh yeah, like uh, we we would held like Arduino workshops at the NASA one, and you'd have these guys like forty or fifty who've never even really touched an Arduino before, like coming in and starting like doing their first. And Arduino,
0: that's just this small really programmable and versatile microcontrollers.
1: Yeah, it's are. very common for high school students and younger college students. Those are the ones where you kind of write in C++ and you kind of, like, program, like, a mm-hmm. servo motor or just, like, a general motor to move or lights to turn on. It's, like, the intro to electronics. And you have these, like, NASA engineers who are building the next-gen rocket, like, have no idea what it is, and kind of just outreaching to new ideas. And they're, I think they're going to really benefit from it. You're, you're going to bring back those things that you learned from other people in this Makerspace environment, and you're going to apply it to create way better things. Cool. So let's let's loop back to the NASA conversation in a little bit.
0: I'd love to learn more. So I didn't know that you started making in high school. Yes. I'd love to learn more about how did you get into that? What, what was your introduction to,
1: to the Makerspace? So the w- one thing that I'm really grateful for from my high school is we had shop classes. But even then, they just weren't, like, taught well. The teachers were kind of just not really into it but like just being around the general equipment like hey i'm like learning calculus i'm going to ap classes but then i can go into this class and i can like weld and i can machine like it was so much more applicable and i felt like i was just missing something like i like hearing about these like 3d printers and all these other cool new tools and they just weren't there and i'm hearing about other high schools like robotics programs and stuff so kind of just like built out of that like i had a project i think my original project is I wanted to put a go-kart engine in a shopping cart. <laughs> um, so I like I needed a place to do this. I was like, there's no way they're going to let me do this in my high school. So I think junior summer, I kind of just Googled it around, and I ended up finding like this like, maker space, and I was really confused by this definition. And I kind of went and checked it out, and I fell in love instantly. It's like, they give you all these tools, was so 24-hour access. You
0: mm-hmm. just walk
1: in, make what you want, talk to the people you want. And it was like one of the best things I probably would have done for my academic career and for my personal, just like life, because mm-hmm. it was a whole new spectrum I was introduced to. But yeah, I was like, I think I was probably one of the first people in my high school who discovered what making is. Uh, back in high school, when I applied to MIT, they actually asked for a maker portfolio, and that's the first time I ever like heard that defined. And I kind of just went in the back of my mind and I blew it away like a general portfolio or something. But then I found out the field's, like, massive, and there's whole communities built around these maker spaces, and that's that's kind of what I happened with high school. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Did you find that other colleges had those maker portfolios?
1: I think I did. I think a lot of the engineering ones, and I think those were, like, the first couple of years they were kind of putting it out there, was mm-hmm. like, hey, do you have, like, not just general portfolios, but this maker portfolio, it's like, do you just, like, sit down Laser cut things and make like a robot that kind of just walks on its own just for like an hour or two. There's something just completely random. I think those what those college are looking for to put yourself just something you're not comfortable learn some new fields and can you like come back and apply it and that's what a lot of what making's about.
0: Got it, so the the ability to learn information, synthesize that information, and Mm -hmm. then actually apply that information in a practical way.
1: Yeah, and the key thing for that is always something different, because the Makerspace embodies such a wide variety of different technical backgrounds. Like, it's almost guaranteed when you walk in, you can learn something that you didn't know, Mm -hmm. and I can almost guarantee that you'll find some way to apply it to your current field.
0: So do you have any any experiences or stories that you can share about when you walked into the Makerspace and you learn something you totally didn't expect to learn that's that served you well sure I could of your maker career
1: yeah I have like plenty of examples for that um one of the good ones is uh Vladimir Birkov. I think okay um but what we did is I just walk in and he's just working on something crazy and I'll do this constantly with Vlad I'll just sit down he'll just throw the info at me and then I'll walk away like how do I apply this to my next situation so one of the ones is I like kind of heard about topology optimization and generative design and what those fields are is kind of just having the computer design the part for you like you give it the parameters that you want and you kind of give it the broad field of how it's going to look and the computer will generate it for you mm-hmm. but uh, before that I really didn't touch into that field at all but yeah no, I walked in one day Vlad was working on it I think he gave me one of his Vlad three hour lectures on it mm-hmm. And I walked away, like, with this whole broad new field that I, like, realized I could apply to additive manufacturing, general, general mechanical engineering, um, even, like, just kind of, like, the VR work I do. I realized there's a lot of potential to make some cool designs in this whole new field. And that happened from just walking in one random day not expecting anything in that makerspace and walking out. Another good example is uh, Spencer Fricke. He He was there all the time just working on electronics mm-hmm. projects. So you just walk in, him... I think I learned almost all my info, like, deep info about microcontrollers from uh, that guy, just walking into his makerspace, talking about his products, he would tell me how it works, I'd ask all the little questions, and then it's always in the back of my mind, like, hey, I have this new info, can I apply this to something that I'm working on?
0: Mm -hmm. So if you want to check out Vlad and Spencer, we had them on Mm -hmm. two weeks ago and three weeks ago, respectively, Uh, I will put links to those in the description. But it's also awesome to hear that you also have a lot of respect for Spencer and Vlad. Yeah. Because they're two of the people who I admire most in the, in the making and engineering world.
1: Uh, it's of. just, you become so intertwined in this making world. Like, if someone comes in every single day at the Makerspace, like, you'll get to know them through that. Mm-hmm. And you'll, like, this isn't a typical friendship where you bond kind of just over this hanging out. You're bonding over, like, a new concept mm-hmm. of working on projects and sharing ideas together. And that really creates a strong environment for learning and just a strong environment for like meeting new people. Cool. And, and so I think that's
0: a good transition. So why do you go into the Makerspace? Want to tell us about what your role is and, and what you've done at the University of Wisconsin Madison Makerspace in particular?
1: Yeah, I can start by introducing the Makerspace a little bit. So it's called, the official title is UW-Madison Granger Design Lab for Innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's known basically throughout the whole campus as the Makerspace. So, it started about a year and a half ago. Uh, It started pretty small. I think we started with, like, five 3D printers, a Mm. laser cutter, uh, kind of general machining tools. And at the point, I think we have almost 30 3D printers. Uh, We've gotten a whole VR area. We have a brand new drone lab. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh,
0: okay, interesting. Yeah, you got
1: to check it out sometime. Um, But the whole idea of that place is, like, there wasn't really a place on campus to go to wrap a prototype in the ripe environment. So you could go to, like, uh, garage physics or just kind of, like, general lab and 3D print, but you weren't really taking anything away from that. But if you go to the place like a makerspace where, like, at least, I want to say there's probably, like, 50 regular people, you probably have a couple hundred students in and out every day, you're bound to learn something new from being in that environment, especially, like, you bring your 3D print design... Like, say one of our workers come over, like, we have a vast knowledge on that, and we're going to be able to give you, like, advice, we're going to, like, try to actually, our main goal is always have a do it do-it-yourself, like, we want you to be sustainable in what the practice you're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah, about a year and a half for that Makerspace. I started way back freshman year when the Makerspace idea was kind of just blooming, so I had a decent amount of VR experience then, and they wanted to have a VR experience in the lab, And I kind of, like, started helping out with that. And all of a sudden, I heard the word Makerspace. And that's the summer before that's the ones where I found uh, the Milwaukee Makerspace. So I, like, instantly got on that. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to invest, like, all my time in that. So at this point, I managed the entire VR lab downstairs. I managed the drone lab downstairs. And I do a lot of outreach in events with the Makerspace. We'll do things like Industry Night, which Mm -hmm. is a new thing we're trying on campus, We'll have basically students come bring in their projects, like the robotics team, the formula car, and we'll have employers come up to them and talk to their projects, talk to them about their projects. I've hosted things like a makeathon. Hackathons are pretty common, but mm-hmm. we wanted to have it more engineering applicable. So this is like we give them like a broad concept that we want to work on, and we actually want a physical product at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of great things have happened in that makerspace.
0: Okay. Do you have any cool stories that came out of the Make-A-Thon? Oh sure.
1: So I believe we had about a hundred students participate for our first UW makeathon. That was we were pretty happy with that. We had some great projects. Uh, one of them, one of the teams, like in the span, we gave them about thirty six hours. Three D printed, coded, and designed an entire. I'm trying to think, it's called BioView. Basically, you could put your like kind of growth cells in. And then you could control exactly what the humidity was, you could mm. control exactly what the temperature is, you could have like a UV light that it, like you could decide exactly how much light you wanted. Mm. So it was this whole controlled environment just for a, like a little disc of bacteria. And they made it in 36 hours. Um, we had another one that kind of worked on a, DC, a deep sea probe, so you'd like throw it in the ocean. And then when it reached it a certain amount of time, like at the bottom, I believe it would release compressed air and kind of just like a little mini-submarine come up and bob to the top. Mm. And, like, these students, like, I guarantee almost all of them didn't have an idea to start with. Like, they they went through the brainstorming session, they went through the redesign processes, and they went through, like, the final stages of iteration of what their product was going to be. And they also had to do, like, a marketing and presentation and stuff. So they did all that in 36 hours.
0: Shit. Yeah, it was That's a really crazy. impressive event. Did any of them start any companies out of there?
1: Uh, no. I just, a lot of them ended up Teaming up with different faculty and staff. I know uh, there was one called a Scratch Boy. So basically, it was like a Game Boy, but programming in Scratch to doing outreach for. Uh... Scratch is
0: a programming language,
1: right? Yeah. So Scratch yeah. is a programming language out of MIT, but it's not a normal programming language. It's like a drag and drop blocks Got one. So you like link one to easy the next. Yes. Yeah, so like the point was, you'd make a little Game Boy where you'd actually be able to code it on there, so like kids would be able to start learning to program at an earlier age. And there were multiple professors that approached him and, like, wanted him to be part of his, like, research group. Uh, There's a lot of other research groups and professors that approached him about being into that. Um, I think the, the reason why companies or prior companies didn't start out of it and companies didn't approach him is just kind of the first year doing it, and it was a lot of uh, younger kids, I would not how to say, which I'm very happy with. But I think as this event goes on, it's going to be used much more for recruiting. The same thing with that reverse industry night. So I
0: want to get back to that in one second because one of the the things that I like to do at Next Frontier is not only show young entrepreneurs how they can better utilize resources Mm -hmm. like you've done with the makerspace and like you've done with all of your making experience, Mm -hmm. but also show companies and show more seasoned entrepreneurs how they can tap into the 20 million college student cloud to help them achieve their bottom line or help them drive forward value not just for themselves but for other people. And also take on mentees and train young entrepreneurs in the process. Mm-hmm. So we'll get back to that in one second. Um, first, I'd love to ask you, do you have plans for how you plan to transition that make-a-thon into maybe more of a business engine? Like maybe you start, you know, you take the, comp- the, the projects that want to start companies, you take those, yep. those projects, you give them like a week or two to reflect, and then you have a follow-up event like two weeks later. Yeah, we've again, actually... When they do business development.
1: Yep, we've been talking to D2P mm-hmm. on campus in Wharf. So if you're not familiar with D2P, it's called Design to Product. Mm-hmm. So it's for students who have these kind of new ideas and how can they bring it to market. So we partnered with them a little bit. But yeah, the next event, we much we want to have a stronger relationship with D2P. Mm-hmm. We actually want to have them there. Um, the first thing we want to do, the main focus is kind of just have this event set. Because uh, I think it was about three of us who kind of ran it last time. Mm-hmm. So we want this to be a This Is the inf- Insight event, or is this a different event? This is uh, just a generic make event. Okay. So this was just run by actually use. We had two Insight members, and then we had three uh, kind of Makerspace members. Okay. And that was kind of ran by us, but we want to have it as a solid event in the UW community. So what's going to happen for the next one is actually I'll probably be taking a step back to focus on things more like that. Like, how do we improve this event? So that includes like getting D2P involved. We want to get a lot more companies involved. Um, and then we'll have the main focus like given on to new students, because we want to have the same students learn the same things that I did when mm-hmm. I ran this event.
0: And when's that going to be? In the fall?
1: Yep. That'll probably be uh, early September, or late September is usually when we run it.
0: And non-UW students can join that as well, right?
1: Yep. Uh, hopefully this event, if there's a whole group called Major League Hacking, where they list all the hackathons, we're hoping to get listed on there, actually.
0: Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. And do you have any, like, two two favorite hackathons outside of the makeathon that you recommend people check
1: out? Oh, yeah. So if you're in the Midwest area, Hack Illinois and MinHacks are the one of the best ones to go to. Hack Illinois is actually where I, I met Spencer Fricky, and that's a great one. I believe there's, like, 1,600 students. It's a whole big campus. The other popular ones I know are TreeHacks at Stanford. That's a harder one to get into, and I've had friends go to the MIT Hacks as well. Mm. Yeah, Cool. But, like, the best thing to do is just get go to a local hackathon like you have these big ones and they like sometimes will pay for your travel but if you really just want to get into this environment just go to the local one like it's just a weekend of your time cool
0: yeah. so looping back around to the industry relations aspect mm-hmm. so the two ways two of the ways that you mentioned that companies and other entrepreneurs can cap into the make making ecosystem or maybe sponsoring a hackathon oh, yeah. sponsoring i know that you have a maker club which if you want to talk about I'd love for you to talk about that too um, how, can, how can these more established organizations, again, tap into that, that college-making ecosystem mm-hmm. that,
1: to, to create value? That's a big thing I've been focusing on. So one of the big ones is we run, I want to say, about 100 workshops at the Makerspace a month. So these workshops are open to the whole UW community. We don't require you to pay from. The goal is just to kind of come in. Like, like I said before, you want to learn a skill that you haven't before kind of walk away with that skill or possibly even something in hand uh, some broad ones of this were like uh doing key transfer on vinyl learning how to use a water jet uh scanning yourself and putting yourself into vr and usually these don't take more than two hours but what we've done in the past with companies like just to get introduced to that environment and get introduced to the students we'll have them come in and do their own workshops so what texas instruments have done is they'll bring like their proprietary like boards will come in and tell you how to program them uh there is a place called flex lighting that had led strips or uh, led screens and they're actually teaching you how to program the led screens so not like just display this image but way more in depth with that cuz these are the experts on this so if a company wants to get involved like just at the lowest level it has to be that like you're going to bring some awesome things to us and you're going to reach out students right away um but yeah the next steps after that i would say are getting involved in these bigger events so, we had, I want to say, 8 to 12 different companies at the last Make-A-Thon, and every single one of them has, like, still been involved with that after. I would say a majority of companies that get involved with the Makerspace stay involved with the Makerspace. So, what does that involvement look like? So, yeah, that's, like, running those workshops. Okay. Um, if we have things like that industry night in the Make-A-Thon, they're sponsoring it. Um, if we ask them, like, to come in and show off, like, a project to, like, students or just kind of come in and give a talk, they're usually almost... Wanting to do it, and and just to give just to give people a sense of, of how,
0: mm-hmm. you know how low hanging of a fruit this is to tap into those college desk, college student market,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, you know to create value. Could you maybe throw a number out there for what it would take to get involved in the sponsorship, is, like money wise? Yes, yeah, a thousand dollars. Is it fifteen
1: thousand dollars? Is it a million dollars? Oh my god, hundred dollars. You bring pizza and you bring like whatever you want to teach, and it can be no more than like a 200 bucks to get started.
0: Okay, so super Uh, low-hanging, really straightforward to get involved.
1: It's such an untapped field for these companies. Like, this is where kids are coming in on their own time and making their products and reaching out. These are going to be the perfect employees that you're going to want for your company. Mm -hmm. Like, I would say almost... So everybody you've had on... uh, Or the two people we mentioned on your podcast, Spencer and Vlad, constantly at the makerspace. Vaughn was constantly at the makerspace. Some of, like, these smartest people that have worked at, like, the best companies and have the most applicable skills come through the makerspace, or heavily involved in the makerspace. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's such an easy for a company to be like, hey, like, I want to come in on, like, this night, and we want to have some pizza and talk about our company, and, like, show off our products, and, like, teach you how to, like, program in our language, or use our software, or, like, build with our, like, uh, material type thing. Mm-hmm. It's such a low thing to do. And if they want to get even more involved, like, uh, I think on average, the Makeathon they donated about 1,000 Mm-hmm. but it really doesn't require more than that mm-hmm. like it's it's the time that you want to be with these mm-hmm. students like we have the makerspace is very grateful in the funds that it has mm-hmm. so we're allowed to do really cool things but like i mentioned before the main thing with the makerspace is you want that people in that environment and that's what you should be involved in mm. all about community oh, it's all about community so a company can just email one of us
0: and get involved right away interesting and, and- so we'll come back to your contact info later. But if someone
1: wanted, if a company wanted to get involved, what's a good place for them to reach out? Um, I'm a good person, but honestly, just to like make an appointment, and, like call the makerspace, even just show up and get a tour, like and just kind of see what the whole environment's mm-hmm. about. That's the best way to do it. Like every time I meet with a new company, I have them come in and tour the space first. Mm. Just kind of get them to see like just how open and like friendly of an environment it is. But not even that, just how like I uh, want to say like how genius of an environment. like You have people working on amazing things there. Mm -hmm. Cool. So
0: from another perspective, if companies wanted to not just recruit, and and this is applicable for students too, about how can you leverage the makerspace to connect with companies Mm -hmm. or create value for yourself and gain experience and utilize company resources through the makerspace. So how how can companies come and maybe tap makerspace to have students develop projects for them? So let's say a company wants to prototype something, Mm -hmm. can they tap students... To, uh, to
1: help them out with that. Yeah, there's actually been a couple of companies that have done that already. Oh, uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to wear that. So for the Makerspace, kind of like the UW system, it's tricky, it's very gray line if you're allowed to make profit off of mm-hmm. that. But say if you're working for a company, like uh, if you're working for like Caterpillar or something, and they want you to just kind of like test this new hinge or kind of develop this new hinge, you're like more than welcome to come in and 3D print it. Mm-hmm. and test that whole thing like our goal is to not to police the makerspace mm-hmm. but to develop the growth of the person within it mm-hmm. and that's definitely giving you an advantage in your career and as a person so we want to encourage that so maybe more generally if, if let's say i'm a i'm an employer mm-hmm. and i want
0: to go have x xyz widget built or prototyped, and i want to go tap into some really talented young entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and young engineers and young young makers uh is going to the Makerspace and saying, hey, I have this project for students to work on. Here's, say, you know, $1,000 yeah. for an incentive prize for whoever builds this for me. Um, is that something that you've seen often? Is that something that you, you can advise on or you can speak
1: to a little bit? Mm-hmm. There's a couple things on that. So it's not something I've seen often. Um, it's definitely something that's been encouraged. Uh, we have an event that we like have $1,000 for the first person that programs a robot to give a tour around the Makerspace. So we have talked about the idea of throwing around, like, hey, this company needs that something done. They're technically not paying you per hourly, but if you meet their goal, like, you can get this some sort of prize. And I've talked to NASA about this, and I've talked to different companies about this. Like, how would you feel about kind of putting these mini awards out Mm -hmm. for people who meet this goal? So that's something we've been looking at. But I'd say the best way is to uh, get involved with clubs. So the two ones that come to mind, the ones that utilize the Makespace Space a lot, First one is insight. That's a little bit more of a I think best way to word that. Kind of like a professional more of org like they're focused on not really R&D but kind of like the full thing of it. And they have to do all that paperwork and go through the whole thing. The full engineering product design process. Yeah. But if you just want to have like hey, I have this crazy new thing I want to try out, like I've never used this technology before, the best like sooner to reach out is the one I run that's called Mad Makers. Mm-hmm. So that's, like, we love working with companies, like, hey, uh, I want to, like, my company hasn't done, like, 3D scanning before. Like, could we come in, like, we'll donate to your club and we can 3D scan for you or something like that. Or we just want to, like, come check it out and have, like, students, like, kind of work on, like, one of our projects. That's definitely welcome to the makerspace.
0: Interesting. And do you have any examples of companies that have done that so far? Or do you have, like, an open call to companies to, to request projects?
1: Nope. It's not something we've worked on yet is we've thrown around the idea and we've kind of reached out to other companies um more of the smaller ones like it let's say the best example so far of it was the make a because mm-hmm. we had cash rewards for that and some companies would give cash rewards based on like their goal and we tried we've been looking at applying that outside and that's still a thing that we're looking at like so if a company had that idea and wanted to do that we're mm-hmm. more than welcome for them to come and try to do that
0: interesting Cool. So I'd love to transition from, from UW Makerspace mm-hmm. over to your NASA experience. Yes. And hearing a little bit about, what, why don't we start with, how did you go about getting into NASA and going and going through that whole process? Yeah. I think you're the first person running on the show who's gone through that, that more government, government internship route.
1: Yeah, so I can talk about the whole process mm-hmm. of it. So the one way I got it is I literally just applied for it. And I got it, like... Just see the general NASA Yeah, that's, that's the one thing everybody always asks, like, hey, how did you get that? Like, who did you know? Like, how did you contact? Like, I want to get one there, too. I was like, just apply. It's how I got it. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty competitive. I want to say maybe 80 other people applied for my position. Um, on general, like, for most NASA positions, it's anywhere between, like, 80 to a couple hundred people that are applying to that position. But it was an awesome experience. So to kind of just give the general overview of it, I worked at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, People really get thrown off by Huntsville, Alabama. (laughs) But that's actually where, like, the Apollo program was, like, the heart of that city. Um, So you had... I met... Engineers that were on the Apollo program. I met the actually lead propulsion engineer of the Apollo program. He's still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. I guess that's just
0: testament to how young the engineers on the Apollo program were. Yeah,
1: <laughs> granted, he's in his like mid 90s, but yeah, they have this uh. super cool thing called the Space and Rocket Center. Uh, it's kind of just like a general museum, but the best thing about it is you'd have these things called docents, basically old engineers, old astronauts. They'll kind of come in in the free time and just talk to like the kids and families walking through about their time at NASA and what they've done. So that was like one of my favorite things. Is like if we were ever in that area, I would just sit and talk to like multiple different docents. Like, hey, like one worked for Boeing on the Apollo program, like for like the fuel lines and that type of stuff. We would just talk for hours about what they did. How do you spell that word, docent? I have no idea. I kind of butchered that word. I think it's D-O-C-E-N-T. Okay. Yeah. Docent. I could I could also be saying it wrong, but <laughs> but yeah, these were like all the old like and they're astronauts too. Like I think the. There was one astronaut who lives in Huntsville that would come in either every Wednesday or every other Wednesday, just to hang out and talk. And these people are super down to earth, and they probably, like, these are the people that contributed to, like, going to the moon, like, the hardcore people, and it was awesome. Um, but back to Huntsville, Alabama, it's a it's becoming a bigger city. It's actually expected to surpass Birmingham as the biggest city in Alabama, and it's becoming... It's saying a lot. Yeah, it's not, it's not <laughs> saying a lot. But it's becoming pretty much a tech city. Like, if I had to predict, like, in 10 years, like, right now, I would say, like, Austin is kind of, like, the city that's kind of blooming in that, uh-huh. like, kind of area. I could see definitely Huntsville in maybe 10 or 15 years being, like, the new Austin.
0: Really? I hear people say that about Madison.
1: Really? No, I don't know. So, like, uh, I can see that with Madison. But with, like, Huntsville, you have uh, the generic companies that are, like, generic aerospace. Like, you have Lockheed offices, Boeing offices. But you also have these new companies, like, Blue Origin just did groundwork on a massive new facility there that they're going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Facebook has offices there. They have the second biggest research park, so you have a lot of these new research companies coming in there. SpaceX also
0: just opened an office there. I believe
1: SpaceX did, too. Like, it will get bigger and bigger, because mm-hmm. that's where, like, a lot of the propulsion comes out of for, like, any rocket engine. And that's actually the so the thing behind NASA. Is each center kind of specializes in different things. So the main thing is propulsion and additive at Marshall. And those are two big fields that, like any aerospace uh, company, yes. Okay. Those are two big fields that any aerospace company is looking in. So is Relativity? Re- is Relativity Space
0: working out of out of Huntsville? That sounds familiar, the, but I'm not. 3D printing rocket engines. They just got a spot at, at uh, Kennedy, a launch pad at Kennedy. That or, sounds.
1: Or, that sounds or like Hanger they de- at Kennedy. Yeah, it definitely sounds like they would be. I'm not too familiar with the companies. I didn't interact with them too much. Uh, a lot of my sp- time was just kind of. Getting used to that whole NASA environment. So working for the government was interesting. So uh, we didn't get paid hourly as interns, so we just got a lump sum. Um, But the coolest thing is, like, you aren't given... It's pretty common, I would say, in the engineering field to give in an intern, like, kind of just, like, kind of dawdle, like, awful projects. Bitch work. Yeah, bitch work, bitch basically. Work. You like, can call it for what it is. Yeah, so, like, I've known people, like, will just, like, kind of, like, place doors in architectural models, like, their whole time and stuff. But at NASA, like you're, you're given giving... that people spend three months putting doors. Oh yeah, like model. it's just awful, and I oh known so God. many people like, do bitch work, like just like general testing of something. Like they're not given enough creativity. That's worse than bitch work. That's CAD God, work. It's awful. But for uh, NASA, like you're just given a full-on project. Like for me, I was given control basically of the entire makerspace there, and it's a lot smaller than the one at Madison, but it's still like a big thing you have in control, and you can decide what to do. And I also uh, kind of spawned out of that. I ended up being like the virtual uh, reality lead on the whole center. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a lot of
0: responsibility. Yeah, and
1: I know people who uh, basically they wrote like SLS, like flight hardware software. If you're not familiar with SLS, it's the space launch system. That's the next big rocket that NASA's working on. It will will launch. (laughs) It will for sure launch once. got to get built first. It's like half there. (laughs) There uh, It's predicted to launch in 2020. We'll see if it meets the date. Um, I know it'll launch once after that. It's up in the air. It depends on other commercial companies. But yeah, like, I knew people um, who worked on life support, like, actually contributing to, like, real products on life support that, like, I knew people, because in that makerspace, like, that same type of environment, like, working on the products that are prototyping there, I saw people wrap prototyping, like, flight hardware, like, I knew one project was going to test, like, crystallization of different materials on the ISS, and that will be flying in like a couple of years, and that was being rapid prototyped in the makerspace by interns. So like, it, it's pretty cool if you can say like on your resume or just like what you did do at NASA. Yeah, no, like my projects on the ISS like as an intern. So it that was That's a re- cool. it was a really cool environment for that. That's cool. And yeah, it was a, the government environment was pretty cool. There was two hundred interns, uh, eight eight thousand other people on base. We were on an army base, so there was about forty to fifty thousand people total. So it was a pretty massive environment. Like it's I like I feel like I can relate it back to, you know, these big Facebook offices and stuff. Like you're not working in a building, you're working on a campus, which mm-hmm. is really cool. So I could uh I could go over to like where they talked to the ISS like one day and just kinda hang out there. Like I could do where they had the massive like tanks of the SLS testing on them. They had like launched their, uh they had the old Apollo launch stands, so where they tested the Saturn V rockets. They had those still standing, so we were able to go up on those and kind of yeah, I know, it's just awesome, there's always something new on that center. But, yeah, like, compared to, I haven't really done too much commercial yet, but I, I love the government environment. There's still, of course, there's a lot more paperwork and road blockages, like, in commercial, you can just kind of do what you want internally until you bring it public, but, um like, your NASA will always, even if they don't have a rocket, they'll always be doing the lead cutting-edge science. And that's something that I really look forward to. Like, NASA does the things that's not commercially viable for other companies to do. Um, It's pretty. Like, I was kind of surprised by like Musk doing like the what is it, spaceship one or Starship one, and then the Raptor. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember what the base is called. It's like a heavy launch system or something like that. But like that's usually not commercially viable. It only is now because NASA is looking for something like that. But things like 3D printing on the moon, um, 3D printing in space. So I, I bring up the 3D printing examples because that's what I worked on. But, like, uh, general life support systems and uh, what are some other good examples? Even just, like, sending people to Mars it's not really a commercial viable thing to do. And I firmly believe that NASA will always be able to do that cool stuff because, like, we're getting paid to not do the commercially viable stuff. We're paid to dip into those waters and then make it commercially viable. That's that's why I think I'll always love and appreciate what they do. Interesting. Well, so, what's the most valuable
0: thing that you learned, not on an engineering level, but on Maybe. a interpersonal level from
1: your from your work with the with NASA and the government this summer? I think the most valuable thing I learned is just if you're willing to push yourself and like bring up ideas, like even as an intern, like, "Hey, can I work on this project?" Usually, you can like it's so easy for people to get like locked in their own little world and be afraid to do something else but like at nasa i didn't think i was going to be able to like st- and i'm still not doing like virtually re- like leading the virtual reality work there and like getting the products i kind of like I'm asking for to work on just because i've asked and that was hugely surprised for me and that's the thing and like i try to incorporate a lot more is like can i just ask to be on a project the worst that's going to happen i say saying no but most of the time they just, like if you're excited about that they're going to love to have you there mm. Interesting. Cool.
0: Cool. I'm just thinking about where to go with this conversation next. There's so many <laughs> different avenues that we can take. Yes. Awesome. So, so you're doing consulting work right now. Are you able to talk about that
1: at all? Yeah. So we actually just started a little firm out of the makerspace, kind of like back to that company type thing. So what we want, we're trying to do is kind of capitalize a little bit on like, so if a company has like a somewhat issue, like how can we use the makerspace assets to do it so general example is we had a plastics company they just had an injection mold that they needed basically 3d scan and reverse cad and that's something that they couldn't do because they don't really have an r&d department to experiment in that realm so what we do is we use the makerspace assets so the best way to describe us is the r&d section for a company that can't have r&d so outsourcing r&d yeah like, they're the, if you want to experiment on something new, if you kind of back to what we talked about before, if you have a wild idea, you can reach out to our company and do something like that. And I'm not sure if this is something we'll make, like, a full-time like time job out of. That's, it's still very early in development. But it's back to that thing of, like, how can a company, like, utilize the Makerspace and how can, like, an entrepreneur utilize the Makerspace.
0: Interesting. An interesting business model yes. could be setting up a platform where you connect companies with different Makerspace teams.
1: Yeah, the country who need
0: who are in the local to the area and want to get things built
1: yeah like a lot of companies are like kind of surprised a lot of bigger companies are kind of surprised by like these makerspaces not existing or like existing but not hearing about them but even at like the milwaukee makerspace you'd have these local businesses like asking people to make like signs there or like redo their electronics work or just kind of 3d print something and laser cut like coasters for weddings like i think it's a lot beneficial to smaller businesses only because these larger businesses have really, like, invested in them or even found them yet. They're so used to kind of this, like, internal environment. Like, if you have something like an R&D thing, you just send it to R&D. But, like, it always goes back to that environment. Like, you have that R&D environment, but if you want the, like, engineer not doing the R&D, just, like, doing the general CAD work to, like, come up with new ideas to do new innovation, you have to put them in something like that. Yeah,
0: So, so you're really ingrained in the cutting edge making innovation ecosystem right now Mm -hmm. um at kind of like a grassroots level so you're not really on the corporate side for professionally you're on the nasa side but but that's not really where your core competency is right now you're really focused on at the student level you're training young entrepreneurs young Mm -hmm. engineers to go out and leverage these technologies to go change the world Mm -hmm. so i'd love to ask you what are the the two or three technologies that you're most excited about and their implications and and why you think tactically so in ways that they can be used right now Mm -hmm. whereas quantum computing might be transformative in 30 40 (laughs) years and fusion might be transformative in 30 40 years things like machine learning are actively right now totally transforming the world through like text to speech for example so what are some technologies that you're excited about right now
1: yeah so like the best way to describe it is like a technology that like you could get in like your little like 10 person work like place and just kind of sit on your desk and it's like a desktop machine or like mm-hmm. some sort of program on your iPhone design. or on your laptop. Yeah.
0: For example. And, and I'd love if you could focus the answer on how can young, young entrepreneurs and mm-hmm. entrepreneurial engineers, how can they leverage that technology right now?
1: Yeah. So the main one always gonna is always going to be, it's kind of what makerspace involve is 3d printing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest field for that one is going to be, is called SLA. So it's stereo So with that, you're creating a part that's kind of, ends up being, after you do the post-processing, it ends up being more machined than 3D printed. And there's a lot of great things to, like, test your ideas. Can you explain that,
0: more machined than 3D printed?
1: Yeah, so what happens is, like, for, you're probably familiar, most people are familiar with, like, the FDM-type printer, so that's, Mm -hmm. like, you have, like, a... extrusion printer. Yeah, you have an extrusion that lays down. So what this does is you have a vat of resin that you solidify using some type of laser or some type of, like, wavelength, And then you still have those lines, but usually the, like, polymers... This is the level lines. Yeah. you have
0: different steps. Yeah,
1: you have the different steps within the part. But then with this type of print, you can actually take it into these after-curing things, where, like, these chemists have done amazing things. Like, if you cure it for the right amount of temperature, what happens is you still have those lines on the outside, but internally it becomes, like, a solid, like, kind of injection-molded, like, completely Mm -hmm. almost isotropic part. And I, I, that technology has been amazing for, like, different entrepreneurs coming through. Um, a couple examples off of my the top of my mind. Uh, we've had... I mean, they're not even engineers. I think they're just, like, medical students. They've uh, come in, and they wanted to find a new way to, like, have nurses hold syringes. So they've been prototyping that off of that. So I think that's the best way if you want a physical prototype. Now, another big one... And, and just backing up, so yeah. what are some examples? So let's say
0: I am a college student and I mm-hmm. want to go start a 3D printing business, mm-hmm. you know, rapid prototyping parts for people. What are some some printers that someone could go buy right now, yes. have on their desktop, and and create value with?
1: Yeah, so the main one we use are a little more expensive. So for the FDM side, like we mentioned beside, before, that's like the filament laying out. Those are ultimakers. Uh, if you're just starting out, I definitely recommend the Pruses are wildly popular. What is it? It's called Prusa. P R U S I A. Those okay. are wildly popular between like all engineers or like all kind of like if I want a little at home printer, what do I use? It's almost always a Prusa. Um, so the Form ones that we have, those are the SLA ones that I talked about. The ones that I think have the best technology. So those are from Form Labs. Yes, those are from Form Labs. They're a pretty newer three uh, D printing company. If you're, there's a whole like big section of like companies fighting out and usually the big ones are like 3d systems and stratasys um but these are like you have these newer companies popping up because they're no longer these big machines for like these corporate like things now you can have these maker and these people want these individual machines and so if like if you're i would heavily invest in the form lab one they have some amazing resins like you have resins that uh can withstand very high temperatures, ones that are, like, flexible, just, like, mm-hmm. generic ones that you can color and such. Like, those are, like, the best ones to use. They're a little bit pricier. Um, I want to say if you want to just get started in, like, those kind of realms, I believe the printer uh, is, like, a photo- or, or a cubic something. Uh, it's, it's a, if you look up, like, SLA, just, like, cheaper machines, you'll find ones that are the same technology, kind of, like, the same generic resins for, like, a fourth of the price. Okay. Yeah. Cool,
0: and then what's, so you were, you were going to go on to another
1: technology. Yeah, I'd say, and I was, I was kind of even skeptical about the tech, how far the technology was going to go at first, but virtual reality is heavily underutilized in a lot of different fields. And I'm very surprised by that. It's starting to catch up, but it's so easy now. So the biggest like buy-in for that is you need some sort of computer. It's not the hardware itself, but some sort of computer that can run it. But even that's becoming cheaper and cheaper and it's so easy to prototype on that like you don't need to pay for like materials or anything like that like you can just throw your model in there you can like kind of play around with it and learn this whole new field like uh, there's a local company in Madison that's uh, they built a whole thing out of like how can we teach surgeons to do surgery in VR before they even touch a person or a mm-hmm. cadaver or something like that mm-hmm. and that's a massive technology that i think that's being heavily underutilized but it's catching up i'd say if there's one thing at the forefront, VR is starting to become that big buzzword that's starting to catch up.
0: So if someone wanted to get started building VR applications, how could a, a young entrepreneur
1: mm-hmm. go,
0: uh, go start utilizing VR to train themselves and then go also start creating value for, for companies? What are some, some ways to learn? And then also, what are some use cases that you're seeing that are, are starting to permeate business?
1: Yeah. So the easiest way to start out with is you don't even need a headset or a computer that can really run this. There's a, it's called Virtual Reality Toolkit. Basically, if you run it without a headset, it kind of emulates one on your computer without using that much processing power. Um, But the first buy-in headset is probably going to be an Oculus Rift, just because they're cheaper. Mm -hmm. But you're having things like these, it's called the Oculus Quest, and like the HTC Vive Cosmos that are starting to become more of this consumer grade. Like, you can pick up a headset for $300 and do all the VR work you need to do on it. And that's becoming... Popular. So, if I, I would actually, if you're looking to start getting into this field, I'll start with holding off probably on a headset for like another six months because you're mm-hmm. going to see a lot of new technologies coming out.
0: Mm-hmm. And from a development standpoint, what do you recommend people dig into or go Google for for tools to learn to start yeah. building VR applications? Yeah, the
1: two most common are always going to be Unreal Engine and Unity. Personally, personally I've been a Unity guy because um, I deal with more engineering type things. If you want to do the more game developer route, like I would say, Unreal Engine usually looks has that like slight edge that makes it look better in VR. But if you just want to have the modularity and kind of just like the general friendliness, Unity is the best thing to start out on. And there's like places like Linda, and there's so many Google videos or sorry YouTube videos. Same thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That can just uh, start you out to like getting that whole environment, and it's such a one of the most satisfactory things about programming is just so easy to make mistakes and correct them, mm-hmm. and it's just and you learn from your mistakes so much. So you program in VR, realize something's wrong, and you spend like five hours bug fixing, but you become so knowledgeable on that subject,
0: mm-hmm. just from failing.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like it's a massive thing, and that, you're it, that's one of my favorite things about VR is like normally with programming, you're kind of failing like with maybe something that's on your computer, but now you're like in this immersive environment and you're seeing these failures and you're correcting them. And it's just so much more immersive and intuitive when you can actually physically see it in front of you. Interesting. And then
0: what are some, some business use cases for VR if people wanted to start playing around?
1: Yeah. So one of the biggest business use cases are for kind of like these smaller business companies that want to just like be able to do human factor engineering on it. So like, how does it feel in your hand? What is like the actual size in front of you? And I would say that's like starting to get more up on an edge of three D printing because normally you want a three D printing because you can hold it, but you're starting to get these new technologies like haptic gloves that actually make you feel like you're holding
0: it. Mm.
1: There's just you could do so much quick iteration. Like there is no technology out there that can do quicker iteration on like can physically see the new things that have happened with that iteration. But like besides VR, so if you have like I don't know some sort of I'm trying to think of a good example like chair that you just want to check out on and you think, like, the legs are too big or something like that, like, you just change that so quickly in VR. Like, maybe you change the model plop it back in. Like, it wouldn't take you more than five minutes. You have a totally new iteration that you're actually getting a real scale on.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. You can load
1: ten models in to start and go yeah. and pick your favorite one. Mm-hmm. Cool. And that's not even just, like, that's just kind of more engineering. Like I said, there's people who, like, will do paintings in it. There's people who do, like, that whole simulation side. So, like, how can a surgeon do surgery? It's... It's pretty wide open, and it's such a growing field. I would say, if I wasn't so interested in additive manufacturing and space exploration, like I would just like dive myself into VR because there's so much for potential for cool things to evolve out of that. Cool. And so, backing
0: up, and then we'll, we'll start rounding out the conversation. But backing up, I'd love to hear. Before high school, were you a maker? Or were you making things? Were you a space cadet and watching rockets? <laughs> what was your What was your your childhood like?
1: So, I grew up a lot on. This is pretty common. I've almost, like, heard this from all CS majors and a lot of engineer majors. Minecraft, basically. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty common one. Um, and I think that's really what kicked it into that making thing. Because the whole, like, thing about that game is about making. And I think, like, just getting started at low level as a child of, like, finding this game where you're kind of, like, making something and you're... Sp- like, this. there's nothing... My favorite feeling in the world is making a plan executing it, and then actually building something that you can admire. Like, I love Mm -hmm. that satisfactory feeling. So I kind of had that, and that was in combination with, like, shop classes. I was very grateful for that, like, woodworking classes in high school and such. And I think that's what started me out as a maker. That's one of the questions a lot of people ask me is, like, when did you become a maker? And I don't know if there's a point in my life when I did. I always just had that urge to make. Mm -hmm.
0: And
1: that's what I've noticed a lot of other people, like, I've known like biology majors and like chemists and stuff like that just love like building something simple as a dresser like that Mm -hmm. whole satisfactory feeling of designing and making is kind of what drives me a lot.
0: Interesting. And then on the space side of things, when did you start getting into space? I don't know. I'm a space cadet, so I always need to ask people (laughs) how I
1: became space cadets. I have honestly no idea for that one. Like, so for applying to NASA, I think it was kind of just something I did might have been on a whim, like I kind of knew I wanted to work at NASA, but I didn't really expect to work there and I just threw it out there, but wanting to be involved in that space industry, I think it doesn't start with the space industry, I think it starts with wanting to be on something that's bigger than yourself Mm -hmm. and something that you're not really working for to like try to like just make money or like there's always that bigger goal in space exploration. And I think as a kid that's what I always wanted. Like I wasn't interested in these like engineering jobs where I on, like HVAC or something or you just like do these general things that like make good money. Like I was my main focus was like I always wanted that job that made you feel something a part of something bigger. And like you had that goal in front of you. It wasn't your goal. It was this goal of like especially NASA of like hundreds of thousands of people working to make the human rights like space sparing. Mm. Yeah. So but like, yes, yeah, it's, it's a really hard question to ask, and I don't think I have a definite answer. And like, when did I become involved in that's space? Okay. That's okay. Yeah, these... well, you're born in the universe. So I guess you can say conception. <laughs> <from> <laughs> these two things, like that, like define me. Have always been a part of me, and I think that's why I enjoy them. And you find myself, and people see me in them so much, because that's just kind mm-hmm. of who I define myself as a person.
0: That's great. So, what, what else do you do?
1: Oof, that's uh, a. I'd say, like besides makerspace and the NASA. Um, I'm trying to think of a lot, of what if I do? So I do a lot of classes, every student, of course. Um but I've met some of my best friends through the makerspace, so it's kinda of just doing fun things like that, like just okay. going up so fun you're, adventures a, you're a
0: deep, deep social maker too.
1: Yeah, like I've I would say a majority of the people I've hung out with are like makerspace people at this point. Ooh, I got a good one. That's uh, fun. besides that, I play a lot of D D. The Dungeons
0: and Dragons. Dungeons
1: and Dragons. Interesting. I love it, man. Okay. It's like and I think everybody would love like, it. The
0: physical game or do you oh play yeah, the, the, the computer game.
1: So my whole thing around it is I don't. We tried playing when I was away this summer. Our group tried playing it kind of remotely at our different locations. It's not the same. Mm. Like the whole great thing about Dungeons and Dragons is just a group of just like people just hanging out and just like doing crazy and stupid fun shit. Like D and D's is like whatever. It's just using your imagination. And it's just sitting around shooting shit. And that's what's so much fun about it. <laughs> there's so much creativity. Like, you're making an entire world that you're, like, your character that you're invested in. So it all
0: comes back to making.
1: Yeah, it even comes back to making again. Like, it's just, like, yeah, that's the, probably the best way to describe that. It usually always comes back to making for me.
0: Cool. Cool. So if people want to find you or they want to follow what you're doing or do you, if you have any calls to action for people, what would you what would you ask people to go do or where can people find you
1: yeah so first of all for the cause of something to do is go to a makerspace. like the person you had on spencer fricky like he feels like deeply kind of i don't want to say empty but like he went to the makerspace every day and he's been trying to like find the same place like that where you can just come out and hang with people while I he's working yeah while he's working or even after like just having a fun project that you want to work on just sitting down and working out with other people or like if you're programming like an arduino and you have someone 3d printing or designing something cool just like talking about their project is a whole great environment so my first like call to action if someone wants to like start getting that maker inside of them is research your local makerspace more than often there's one usually close by Um, if you're a younger person usually you can get discounted rates for going to them Mm -hmm. we're very privileged at uh madison to like you technically don't have to pay to be in the makerspace and be around it but it's pretty common for other makerspaces to have like a monthly fee Usually it's not, like, a crazy rate, like $30 a month or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that would be my first call to action. Um,
0: Which is a challenge, too. If you need to get a Makerspace fee paid for, how can you use the Makerspace to start a business to pay for it?
1: Yeah, like, I, so it was like a challenge. the Milwaukee Makerspace, they openly encouraged you to make yeah. money off that place. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people that, like, that was just another business expense for them. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That was great. And then what was the other question again?
0: My other question is if people wanted to reach you or or find you, how could they go about doing that?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, the best way to get me is at the Makerspace. I'll be at the Madison Makerspace. It's guaranteed every single weekday I'll probably be there.
0: Through, like, 2021? Yeah,
1: so I'll graduate December 2020. But, uh, (laughs) yeah, if you want to reach me, best place is just look up Taylor Waddell. I'm sure Max will have a link. Uh, LinkedIn, email, I'm pretty open to anybody contacting me. I've had a lot of people that have come through the makerspace or just come across like what I do and just ask questions and I'll help them out. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so we'll put links in the description yes. for that. So, so cool. All right, dude. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Any closing thoughts before we before we end? No, no closing thoughts. Just for me. be a maker. Yes. Go, go love making. Okay, cool. Like
1: the sorry, the one quick closing thought is like I can guarantee you, almost everyone's a maker. Like, I've uh-huh. met, like, stu- people and students in human ecology, like, economics majors. Uh, one of the people the makerspace is a business major. Like, everybody has that little thing in front of, like, inside of them that mm-hmm. they want to make something. Mm-hmm. So, see what you can do. See, like, explore what you are as a maker and see if you can push yourself to, like, find that little piece of in inside of you because I know it's there. Awesome. Thank you, dude. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on.
0: I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Taylor, we'll put some notes about how to contact Taylor, where to find Taylor's work, etc., in the show notes for this episode. My closing question for this week is how will you capitalize on this abundance of maker resource, whether you're a student, a young entrepreneur, a designer, an engineer, or you're a seasoned entrepreneur, you're someone who's more established in business, you run a corporation, you run a billion-dollar corporation – How do you plan to tap into this abundance of brilliant college students who have the cutting-edge technology tools to go be makers and create absolutely incredible products? If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest hyper-tactical resource utilization tips for young entrepreneurs and for how to tap into the creative cloud that is young entrepreneurs, head on over to nextfrontier.org, one word, nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. The link will also be down in the show notes. Cheers to the week ahead and happy resource utilizing.